Well, listen, find your sermon outline if you haven't already, and let's open our Bibles to the book of Matthew, please. We're going to be in Matthew 4 today, Matthew chapter 4, just to start, then we're going to be over in chapter 9, and then we're going to look at a big picture of the book of Matthew. We start a new series today called The Kingdom of God. It's really going to be the gospel story, the, the whole story of the book of Matthew, and I'm excited about this. We love the Bible. We love every page of the Bible. We love to teach through the Bible, and we're going to take the next several months to actually go through the Gospel of Matthew. It's a little different kind of series than we're normally used to doing. Of course, we have done book studies before, uh, but it's been a little while since we've immersed ourselves in a book that's just going to really set the agenda for what we're going to talk about. We tend to do a lot of topical exposition, which is great. We have a theme, and we find scriptures and themes all through the Bible that we can kind of come alongside, but we're going to just, the Holy Spirit's just kind of been challenging me to sit for a while in a book and let the Bible set the agenda for the topics, okay? And, uh, and in my Bible, I don't know about yours, but the book of Matthew is just 16 pages long. That's all it is. And so then I started coming through it. I said, well, how are we going to, well, it's 28 chapters. I thought, well, could we, you know, preach a chapter a week and that'd be a 28-week series. And I was looking at the chapters and some of them are lengthy and many of them have several topics, you know, that you probably wouldn't want to be like preaching on divorce and then in the same message preaching on children coming to Jesus. And, you know, it gets a little messy when you try to do big sections of scripture. So I thought, well, let's, let's break it down into where the themes really are in each individual theme. And then I mapped that out and found that there was about 106 sections in the book of Matthew. I thought, okay, cool. Okay, so there's 52 weeks in a year. It's 106 sessions. You do the math how long we're going to be in this book. But you know what? I'm excited about it. I hope you are too because every week we'll be hearing from what the Spirit of God uh, through, the, through the messenger Matthew wanted us to know about Jesus a couple ideas that will, will help us in this, why are we taking this focus? One is, is simply to have a more clear gospel focus in our lives. I don't know if we can ever be, uh, have, if we can ever have enough of the gospel in our lives. And the whole Bible is great, but isn't it cool to think about just being, camping out in a preaching season in the gospel of Matthew, what many believe Matthew, the, the gospel that has more of the sayings of Jesus, more on the life of Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's everything about Jesus. And that's what we are about here at Three Crosses. So it just makes a lot of sense that we would have just a, a more laser beam focus on the gospel. Another reason is that I think there's some alignment things that we can be working on and our leadership's been thinking about how we can align our services a little better for some future uh, vision and some future goals. Right now we have a Sunday night service that usually walks on a little different track and so we've been thinking about pulling all of our services into a single alignment and really going through a book like Matthew will help us to do that. And so Pastor Danny will be preaching the same similar themes on Sunday night as we find in Sunday mornings and so those of you that like going to both, you're probably going to get a double dose of some of these things and once in a while I'll flip into Sunday nights and Danny will flip down into Sunday mornings and we're just going to share the time. We're going to go through this book, we're going to Learn what Jesus wants our lives to be. And I don't know about you, but I want that more in my life. I want to follow Jesus in my life. And I want, I want to know, and, and we could go anywhere in the scripture to do that, but it's just going to be cool to be in the gospel for a long time. 
And we'll take some breaks and we'll have special speakers and all that kind of stuff. And most of you probably won't even figure all this out because there's kind of sub-themes in the book of Matthew 2. We're first going to take several weeks and just meet this king, the king of the kingdom. And then we're going to get into the ethics of the kingdom, Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7. And we're going to just walk through this book in in an amazing way. I'm excited about it. And right here in chapter 4, Beginning in verse 12, when Jesus began to teach in his ministry, he returns to Galilee, he leaves Nazareth, Nazareth, and he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. Look at verse 14. Why did he go there to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah? So now here Matthew's going to quote an Old Testament scripture. By the way, there's no gospel writer that uses more Old Testament quotations than does Matthew, and here's one of the 65 he does in his book. He says, uh, quoting the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Now that's a a beautiful quotation out of a passage of scripture that we oftentimes associate with Advent, with the coming of Christ, that the light has shone, that the light has come into the world. What a beautiful place to begin in our Advent series, in this little mini-series tucked into this grand series of the kingdom of God in the book of Matthew, as we look and are introduced to the king of the kingdom by looking at the fact that Jesus, when he began his ministry, was actually fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies that a light would come to the darkness And the people walking in darkness would see this great light. And that's where it all starts for all of us. In fact, today, I'm going to suggest to you that Matthew, the one who wrote this gospel, was one who came into the light. He saw the light and he was invited in and he came in. And that's an invitation for all of us today and all of our neighbors and all of our friends and people at work that everyone needs to hear the gospel. They need to see the light and recognize that Jesus is that light and Jesus is inviting us into the light. So we're going to unpack this through the life of Matthew. Now today I just want to show you Matthew. I want to just get to know Matthew. Some of us, this will be familiar to us. Some of us, we don't know who Matthew is. We never really heard of him. We know that the gospel's named after him. We don't understand who he was or what he did. And so I want to show you that today. And go over to chapter 9, please, and we're going to first meet Matthew there. Matthew chapter 9. It's funny, nine chapters before we even meet the one who's penning this gospel Matthew, if your name is Matthew, anybody's name Matthew here? Just raise your hand, anybody? Okay, there's one over there. Good. You know what your name means? It means gift of God. That's a great name. Think about naming your kid gift of God. That's cool. And so if your name is Matthew, that's great. I'm sure you appreciate that. I don't know what Larry means. It probably means a mistake. Anyway, I don't know whatever it means. I don't know what it means, but I know it doesn't mean gift of God. And that's what Matthew's name is. We meet Matthew first through the name Levi as the other gospel writers name him. Levi was his Hebrew name, but somewhere along the line either Matthew changed his name because of his new life in Christ or Jesus like Jesus did with individuals like he did with Peter. Simon, remember, you will be Peter the rock. Because on this rock, the rock of your confession that I am the Christ, I will build my church. And so Jesus maybe changed Matthew's name, we don't know. But Matthew, from this beginning point of his journey, saw himself as a gift from God. That's what his name means. And here in chapter 9, verse 9, we meet him. 
And we just find this right in the narrative where Jesus leaves this place. He comes along the way and he sees a man, verse 9. There he saw a man named Matthew sitting at a tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners." All right, this little text introduces us to the life of Matthew. And I just want to show you three things about his life that maybe you can relate to to some degree in your life and maybe as we go along in this series to an even greater degree. First of all, what we find in this text about Matthew is that Matthew is a guy with a checkered past. What I mean by that is he's got a colorful past. He's, he's got a suspect past. He's got a past. Everybody has a past if you come to know Christ. Remember, The Bible tells us that if anyone be in Christ, the old is gone and the new has come, right? So all of us, if we've come to know Christ, we have a past. And for some of us, that's a hard thing to deal with. I talk to people sometimes that think that their past is somewhat limiting to them. When you look at Matthew in terms of what his past represents, his past represents that he was was a Jewish tax collector. And this is the way it worked back in that day. Rome, as it took over the world, it was, a, it was the world empire at the time, whatever nations or kingdoms that it conscripted or that it uh, occupied, would, they would set up these tax franchises where people of their own country would then exact taxes for Rome. And we know from the gospel record that tax collectors in Judea, in the land of Palestine, during the time of Christ, during the New Testament, were considered as, as traitors. They were hated by people. And I don't know if anyone can, any of us can really even relate to this because most of us are not hated people. Uh, we might have some issues where we've been hated at times by somebody or we crossed somebody's path or we didn't treat someone right. But, but talk about a person that literally the 360 degree of your view every day would be hated by the people that are around you except your, your own tax gatherer friends. Because as a Jew, you were seen one as a traitor who would actually take money from your own people and then send it to such a godless enterprise as Rome. It was Jewish law by the rabbinical code that if you had any kind of contact with a tax collector, if you mistakenly shook hands or exchanged comments of friendliness with a tax collector, you didn't know what they did for a living, and then you found out that they were, you were mandated to do a ritual cleansing to remove the defilement from your life. Isn't that wild? You know, you're shaking hands. Hey, nice to meet you. I'm Larry. Oh, what's your name? Oh, your name is Matthew. Oh, great. What do you do? Well, I'm a tax collector. Ugh. You know, it's like this, you know. Now, I know some of us, and I, by the way, as I'm talking about this, some of you think, yeah, I, I feel that way toward the IRS too. I mean, now you're talking my language. Now, we're not talking about that. This is a completely different thing. The, the analogy would be more of something along the lines of if you... Uh, came in contact with a terrorist or what if somebody that, that was in the ISIS organization and when you think about that and that's even different from where Matthew's coming from because we know those are enemies but here's a guy who's representing Rome and by the way here's how they would set up these tax franchises they would say okay in your area we would expect 
about this much money. Anything you make above that money, you can keep for yourself. You talk about a motivation for sort of getting ahead. You know, so you'd have the, the clout of the Roman government saying, you pay us this for this area that you serve. We'll calculate it out and we'll make it an average. You make that what you send to us and anything you make above that is yours to keep. Tax collectors were known as swindlers. They extorted money and they had the backing of the Roman government. So if you were arguing with one of those guys, a Roman soldier would just walk up and say, hey, what's the problem here? And Matthew was one of those guys that was on a toll booth, which meant people were traversing, coming here and back and forth. They were bringing goods. He could, he could tax them for as much and all of what he wanted to do. And he, like Zacchaeus that we read about in the Gospel of Luke and others, we understand how virtually hated these people were because they were known for taking money from people, taking more than what was really their own fair share, and then representing this government. I, I know some people that are in professions where they feel a certain amount of heat and even hatred. I know police officers, and oh my goodness, over these last week, haven't you, haven't you felt for, uh, uh, for everyone on, on all sides of this, oh, the whole issue of Ferguson and, and people that feel like they're, you know, justice hasn't been served and, and people that are angry, and then you think about police officers that are out there doing their job and trying to keep order, and, and oh, it's crazy, you know, right here in Oakland and right around us and people are angry and frustrated. And I talk to some of my police officer friends and say, sometimes I walk on the job or on my beat and everyone I see just, you could just tell there's just hatred. I don't know what kind of stuff's going on in your life today, but let's just think about this from the standpoint of Matthew's life. Matthew's a guy that, that follows Jesus, but man, he's got a past. He's got something that, that could easily weigh him down. And some of us, this morning, we've got a past that we, we think, God could never love me for the person I've been, the way I've treated my family or my wife or my kids or the way I've stolen from work or the, whatever, my attitude. Some of us have said, God could never love me. And I love this text because it tells me that Jesus made his way and he, and he comes and he finds Matthew, a guy that has a past. And he says, Matthew, I want you to follow me. It's a beautiful, glorious reality of Jesus who then goes on to say when the Pharisees are all uptight about this, he says, look, these are the kind of guys I came for. I've come for the sick. If you think you're well, you don't need a doctor. I've come for people who know they're sick. And some of us may be sitting here, and I, and I know I'm talking to the choir in a sense, but in a crowd this size, there are some of us that are saying, God could never love me because of X, because of this, because of that, because of whatever. Fill in the blank, A, B, C. You've got a list of reasons why God couldn't love you, why God could never work his plan in your life, why God could never use you to make an impact for the kingdom. And you've talked yourself out of it more times than not because you don't think that you're deserving, and you're not. That's the beauty of the gospel, that Jesus comes to us anyway, whatever our past and I know I'm talking to the church. I'm talking to people who come often and regular, but there may be somebody here this morning, and I don't know who might listen to this message online. Whoever you are, if you think God couldn't love you, doesn't love you because of your sinful past, you've got it all wrong. You're the, the kind of person that God's looking for. He's, the, he's coming for you and asking you to follow him in your life. It's a beautiful reality of the gospel. You see, before we come to know Jesus, we're all in darkness, all of us. Talk about people living in darkness have seen a great light. Remember, Jesus said, 
in, uh, in John chapter 8, verse 12, he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 12, 46, I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. Listen, God's plan is that you come out of darkness. The invitation is for you today to leave your life of darkness wherever it is, whatever it is, whatever it means, and come and follow Jesus. Leave it behind. That's the invitation of the gospel, and that's what happened in Matthew's life. Matthew was a guy with a checkered past. The second thing about Matthew is Matthew was a guy with a changed heart. He had a checkered past, but he had a changed heart. You can look back at the text again in verse nine, well, verse 9. While he's sitting there, Jesus says to him, follow me. And one of those beautiful passages in all of Scripture, it says Matthew got up and followed him. Now Matthew's writing about himself here. He's doing it in the third person. He's writing as if he's looking at his life. And he's saying, I remember that day when Jesus came along and saw me in that toll booth. And Jesus, knowing who he was, knowing in my heart that this had to be Messiah, came and walked up to me, a sinner as I was, I would have never gone after him. But Jesus came to me, and he asked me to follow him. And Matthew got up, and he followed him. I find it interesting in this text, there's no mention of Matthew's repenting of sin or declaring any creed, but woven into this action point of Matthew's response to Jesus, we we see the prescription for life transformation. Life transformation happens through following Christ. That means a lot to us around here, doesn't it? You see the context of this? These are precious words to our church because this is our purpose, life transformation through following Christ, not knowing about him, not hearing about him, but following Jesus Christ. A changed heart will lead to a changed lifestyle. And I love this fundamental simplicity that we don't have to be intellectuals to have a transformed life. We don't have to be talented to have a transformed life. We don't have to be related to the right people to have a transformed life. We don't have to have our life all cleaned up to be transformed. But you do have to follow Jesus if you want a transformed life. Are you following that? We gotta follow Jesus. And now I'm speaking to the church in saying some of us are learning about Jesus but we're not following Jesus. We're deciding what we can give to Jesus and what we won't give to Jesus. We're defining Christianity on our own terms. We're coming up with our own equation of what it means to to really be a Christ follower. And the the Bible's really clear all throughout, but right here specifically, when Jesus says follow, it means come and live my life. Live with me. Learn my ways. Live a changed life. Have you lived a different life? It shouldn't be difficult to see how Jesus has transformed our lives. Should it? I mean, if we really believe in life transformation through following Jesus, and if we're following Jesus today, I'm following Jesus, are you following Jesus? How many followers of Jesus do we have here? Just raise your hand if you're a follower of Jesus. Okay, most of us respect those ones that didn't raise your hand right now. That's cool, I'm pretty excited about that actually, that you're here listening today. If you're a follower of Jesus, there should be transformation seen in all of our lives. So if I were to come down right now and ask you, some of you are getting nervous right now, would you be able to say, here's, here's how Jesus has transformed my life? So as I was preparing this, I said, okay, Larry, what about you? 
Where do you see transformation in your life? Where do you see ongoing transformation in your life? And just boom, boom, boom. Just so, man, just the Lord showed me this. It was really easy for me. Number one, I was a kid that grew up afraid of anything and everything. I was afraid of my own shadow as a kid. I seriously, I was just, I was always nervous, always afraid about my family. Will someone get hurt? I was, I was a, my mom called me a worry wart all the time. I was just afraid. But when Jesus came into my life, even as a young kid, third grade, I gave my life to Jesus. I remember the sense of God relieving me of my fears. And I remember giving testimony later about that, that I no, I no longer had to be afraid. And I'll never forget my dad at the time came to me and said, wow, that was really profound that you said that because when I was 13, my dad was 13 when he gave his heart to Jesus, he said, I was afraid and, and the first thing that I felt the Lord say to me is, you don't have to be afraid anymore. And he said, wow, that's like, woo, you know, like coming now in my life. And I thought, wow, maybe I come from a long string of worry warts, you know, a long legacy. Maybe that's true. Maybe it was a generational sin in my family's life of just always being worried about this and that. Worry, worry. You know, worry can kill people. And God freed me from that. I remember the testimony of that. God gave me confidence. I, you know, think if someone would have told me I'd have been speaking publicly as a, you know, a big part of my career, I'd been going, no way. That would just be way too scary. God has dealt with the fear issue in my life. And he's still dealing with that in my life. Because every now and then it creeps back up. I'm afraid about what people are going to think. Or how, you know, how do we get all of these people on the same page? And, and I, I, I get fearful at times. And God has to remind me, hey, I've conquered that area in your life. And he keeps transforming me to be confident and trust him and not be afraid. Another area of transformation that I saw immediately in my life was love. Now, I gave my life to Jesus as a third grader. And then as I began to grow, I got into junior high, high school, and I could see there were some tensions and, you know, being more like my friends and going to church and living one way. And, but here's what happened. I went to a school across the bay, Belmont, uh, called Carlmont. 1971 to 75 was my years. And in those first few years, a freshman in high school, my school started, I think it was the first school in the state to do this, the plan of desegregation. We were a white bread community uh, with lots of resources, and we, we were suddenly introduced to a group of students who went to high school in Palo Alto and Menlo Park, uh, specifically East Palo Alto, that were being bused to our school in order to sort of integrate students uh, of color into this white community. And what was cool about it at the time was, wow, and I just, I thought it was great, but... I started seeing on my campus all kinds of friction and factions and prejudice. And some of my friends were very prejudiced. And I had family, extended family members who also carried some of that prejudice. And it would have been really easy for me to become a, a prejudiced person. And here's what even would have heightened it more. And I think I've told this story a little bit in the past. But one day, and in, 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 we had huge problems on our campus. We had fights, riots. I can still remember Christmas break, two days before Christmas break, and all the police coming out with their riot gear because there were just these radical fights in our, on our campus between blacks and whites. And, and the only good thing I thought about at that, that time was we got out of school two days early for Christmas break. That was really the only good thing that I remember out of that. But I remember it was sort of a scary moment. And not too long after that, I was out at the bus stop getting ready to go home, get on my bus to go home, and there was a nice leather jacket laying there and I thought, ooh, nobody's around. I'm kind of, do you know who that belongs? And I just thought, 
that thing is going to get ripped off. I'm going to take it and bring it back to the school the next day and put it in lost and found. But I didn't want to miss my bus. So I grabbed it. I get on the bus. And along about that time, a group of African-American students come out. They're looking around for this jacket. And somebody says, the guy on the bus with the, the skinny guy with glasses and big ears. He's the guy that you need to see. And these guys came on the bus and they were, I mean, they were saying all kinds of really strange and, and I, you know, like I was freaking out. I thought my life is over. They told me the next day my life basically would be over. And I remember going home and just like I was really wrestling with this. But again, as a, as a new, as a Christ follower, sort of learning that I, I can't just say I'm a follower of Jesus. I've got to experience what it means to follow him. I remember praying, saying, God, what do I do? And, and I remember that night, it, I don't want to get too mystical with it, but God gave me a peace in my heart not to worry, not to fear, but instead to love. I remember I went back to the campus the next day, and here's the real story. The real story. I never saw that guy or his friends in, the next, in my entire high school experience. I, I, I'm sure they were still in the school, but... We never bumped into each other, never saw each other, but instead what God gave me was a love for people of color and not to, to feel like suddenly they, it was us against them or me against them and God just fixed that thing and like one boom, he just fixed it in my heart. And ever since, it's been that way. God, God has given me a love for people of color uh, and it's, it, I, I don't want that to sound too weird. I'm just saying we live in a culture that still sees so much color and I don't understand it. I really don't. I'm grateful that we're a congregation of a lot of color. I look around. You know, we've got people from all different races and backgrounds. And that's a beautiful thing. And we need to grow more in that too. We need to represent our community. But there's some of us who might be sitting here today and say, well, I could never be close to someone of another color or another race or another way they vote or another socioeconomic background. I mean, what is the barrier to you? Is love breaking through? Maybe we need a new culture of love. You know, uh, I, I told you in this little church I grew up across the bay, I was, a, um, I was a janitor. My first job was a janitor at that church. And so I remember doing all kinds of cleaning toilets and, you know, janitors. I have a, a heart for people that work as in the custodial world, even around our church, because when you do everything right, nobody notices, but if you forget something, everybody's just like, you know. And it's hard, it's hard work. But I remember our youth ministry started to grow in such a way that it eclipsed the adult ministry of our church over across the bay. And that church went through a real a real evolution of culture change. And I'll never forget people arguing in meetings, yelling at our youth pastors because all these kids are up here ruining this church. And I remember our youth pastor once saying, well, aren't these the kids that we wanted to reach? And they're having arguments about this. And I'm just a kid, I'm in the high school group listening to all this. And it could have just... It could have wrecked me for my life. It could have wrecked me about church. It could have wrecked me about people that call themselves Christians because there were a few people that didn't like the mess and the loudness and the trouble that comes with all these kids that don't know Jesus coming into the church. And I'll tell you what, there's, there's something for us in this too because some of us are not sure about certain kinds of people that might find their way into a church who are looking for help, looking for God, looking for Jesus, looking for a new way of life. And we say, hey, it's okay out there, but not in here. We can send that message. We can send it by the way we talk to them, by the way we love them. 
or don't love them. Love. We need a culture change. We need more love to people who are not like us. Why? So they can stay where they are? Not necessarily. Some things that are different about other people are never going to change. Like race, sometimes like socioeconomic background, there's going to be a long climb in that whole picture. Some people are not going to change their political views. They can be a Christ follower as a Democrat, Christ follower as a Republican. Some of you are going, oh, come on, are you kidding me? Or anything in between. There's all kinds of, but watch this. We want people to meet Jesus so that when Jesus says, hey, you follow me, they will get up out of their life of darkness and they will follow Jesus and he will change their life. He will change whatever needs to be changed in their lives. God worked on me in the area of fear. He worked on me in the area of love. He also worked on me in the area of service. Um, I was kind of a selfish kid growing up. You could ask my sisters. <laughs> you know, kind of went by my own drumbeat. My dad would always tell me to do stuff, help out around the house. I never wanted to help out. And then he would drag me to work days at the church, you know, so I could help him. And I didn't like doing that either. But you know, when I started understanding what it meant to be a follower of Jesus, I began to see there was this value about service and God began to give me a desire to be others conscious and think about others more than myself. And believe me, I got a long ways to go in that area. But that was even part of the reason why I chose a career path in firefighting because I wanted to help others. God put a work of service in my heart and he's still transforming me that way. I mean, it's kind of weird, but I, I like getting down in the trenches and helping people out and doing stuff. And sometimes people say, Larry, come on, you're the senior pastor. Get out of there. You need to be doing this stuff. And sometimes it is a distraction that I get focused in things that maybe others should be doing and I shouldn't be doing. I don't know. I'm all conflicted sometimes because I love serving. And I'll run out of something that maybe needs my time and attention right here to run over here to help somebody. Um, all I can say to you is I see this of what God's doing in my life. I see it in the area of fear. I see it in the area of love. And I see it in the area of service. And those are three things that God's just, he's worked in initially in my conversion experience. And he's continued to work in my life. And he's continuing to work in my life. And I've just got a dozen other things I need to work on. And if you don't even know what those are, you can talk to my wife. You can talk to all kinds of people that know that Larry Vol needs to change. And I'm excited about the change because I'm following Jesus. And I need to change. I need to less, think less about myself. I need to give more to the kingdom work. I need to... There's so much. The point is, Matthew had a changed heart. Do you? Do you have a changed heart today? The last thing I want to show you, and our time is just kind of running out here, but Matthew's someone with a, not only a, a checkered past, a changed heart, but he's also a guy with a clear vision. And I love this about Matthew, and we're going to learn more about this as we study this book. But Matthew, first thing he does is he throws a party for all of his tax collector friends. <laughs> and he has Jesus there. Isn't that cool? I mean, you know what we do a lot of times? We come to know Christ and we isolate from all of our non-Christian friends. And we get so involved in the church, some of us couldn't count one person who's a friend that we spend time with that is not a Christian. That's pathetic. I'm serious. That's wrong. We have so isolated ourselves. We need to figure out ways of having non-Christians in our lives because guess what? We've got a beautiful message to tell them. And they need to hear it. They need to hear it in the context of our changed life. Not preaching at them, not preaching down to them. They need to see the way Jesus is changing, changed and changing us. 
And I think Matthew just had it right, right out of the chute where he follows Jesus. He says, hey, I want all my friends to know this Jesus too. If he invited me to follow him, he'd invite them too. And so he invites them. And meanwhile, the religious people are sitting around grumbling. You you see all these people? Why would Jesus hang out with these people? And Jesus says, hey, whoa, 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 whoa. These are the people I came for. Hello. People that don't think they're sick, they don't need a doctor. When you can admit that there's a need in your life, I'm the great physician. I can heal your life. I can change your life. I can make you a new creation. I can do that all with simply a heart that says, I believe. (laughs) The greatest miracle in the world. I believe. You can't orchestrate it. It's not making a decision for Jesus. It's hearing his still small voice in your heart saying, I'm talking to you. I'm talking to you. I'm talking to that neighbor. And I want you to follow me. And Matthew sets out to introduce his whole world to Jesus. I was really blessed a couple weeks ago, uh, actually just a week ago, one of our members here had a housewarming because they got into a house. It was a miraculous story and they wanted their friends to know about it. And they're new Christians, kind of new. One is a little further along in the faith and one is newer. And, and uh, so they said, would you just come by? I want you to meet our friends. I said, cool. So I come by. And I'm thinking I'm just going to, they wanted me to pray a prayer of dedication, a blessing over their, of their home. And that's cool. And I reminded them, hey, you don't need a pastor to do that. You know, sometimes we think, well, we've got to get a pastor to come in because pastors sort of have this link with God and, you know, and we've gone through all that before. But just a a gentle, loving reminder. There's nothing prescriptive in the Bible about dedicating your house to the Lord. But I got it. God gave them this house and they wanted their friends to know that God gave them that. So they said, here, we're going to tell a little story and then we just want you to pray. So they get all their friends and I show up and there's all these amazing people there that are not followers of Christ that I know. Uh, they're intelligent. They're in the workforce. They're connected to this couple. And I'm just getting to know them and having a wonderful time just sharing our lives, sharing our experiences. Just this beautiful time. And the whole time I got my Bible under my arm, you know, because I'm going to bring a little scripture. And a couple of them noticed, you know, like when we're talking about what we do, they go, what do you do? Oh, I'm a pastor. Oh, that's why you're carrying a Bible. You know, it's like, <laughs> I was getting a little nervous there, right? With, my Bible and under my, anyway, so we, we have this conversation and then this beautiful couple step up. They say, okay, everybody listen up. They gather in, there's probably 35, 40 people there and they tell the story of what God did in their lives, bringing them to faith, how God got in this house and that all God gets all the glory. Then they introduce, hey, we just want ask our pastor if he'd come say a word. I just say a little word, pray. There was so much connectivity. I believe that there's seeds planted that someday is going to bear fruit because this family said, we want our friends to know what Jesus has done. You know, this Christmas, why not look at an opportunity maybe to invite people into your home just for the purpose of having a party, providing some great food. Invite them to the Christmas program. Say, we're going to have a great banquet come and join us and then we're gonna all head up to to three crosses where we're gonna hear the story of what changed our lives I don't know be creative think of ways to introduce your friends to this one that changed your life Matthew went on to pen and put together one of the most beautiful gospels we have four gospels Matthew Mark Luke and John early church fathers and the early church 
use the Gospel of Matthew. It's positioned as number one in the New Testament because it contains the most sayings of Jesus, most about the life of Jesus. Not to diminish the other writers. They all had a different intent. But here's Matthew's intent. If you're taking notes, they're not on the screen. Just write this down. Number one, Matthew's intent was that he wanted to prove that Jesus was the Christ to his own people. Is there anybody you want to prove to somebody that Jesus is who he says he is? Well, Matthew's a beautiful account because a Jew writing to Jews, he gives so much support for why we can believe that Jesus is the one. You know where we're going to be next week as we start into this book? Go back to Matthew chapter 1 just quickly. Flip over a couple. Let me hear some pages turning quickly. Matthew chapter 1. We're going to study next week verses 1 through 17. Would you look at that? Matthew 1 through 17 is going to be our preaching text next Sunday. <laughs> I know some of you are thinking, okay, I'm going to be out of town next week. That's going to be great. You're afraid of 1 through 17. You go, I know this passage. This is where I skip over to verse 18 when we learn about the birth of Jesus. No, 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 no. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training, righteousness that the man or woman of God will be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Matthew 1, 1 through 17 is in that passage, in that whole context. And part of it is proving that Jesus is the one that the Jews were waiting for. We're going to see that next week. Number two, Matthew wanted to provide a thorough examination of the life and teachings of Jesus. This is the way the book rolls out. Narrative, discourse. Narrative, discourse. Narrative, discourse. Narrative, discourse. It has the longest discourse sections in all of the Gospels, which means the teaching sections of Jesus. And Matthew doesn't put these together chronologically as much as he does organizationally or logically. So he puts parables together and he puts the teachings to his disciples together. And he puts this compilation of the Sermon on the Mount. Some think that it was in one setting. It probably wasn't. The point is that Jesus taught his disciples many things. Sermon on the Mount, great discourse section. So we have the words of Jesus and the works of Jesus. And that's the parallel that goes all through this book. And that's what we're going to be doing for the next, I don't know how long. We're going to be looking at the work of Jesus and the words of Jesus. And lastly, Matthew's going to show us that as much as Christianity is for the Jew and the Jewish people, it is also and more importantly, for the entire world. Come to the end of his gospel, Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Go and make disciples of all nations, all ethnos, all people groups. The gospel is for everybody. So, that's a little bit about Matthew. Do you see yourself in his life? This morning you say, wow, I've got a past. Oh, Jesus wants to come into your life, forgive your past and give you a future that is changed and with him. A changed heart. Has your heart been changed? Is it changing daily, conforming more to the life of Jesus? And do you have a clear vision like Matthew to reach your world for Jesus Christ? Let that be a stimulus for how you look at your life as we take our journey through this amazing book. And even as we begin right here on this Advent Sunday. I'm going to ask us right now simply just to go to the Lord in prayer. And as you do that, I'm going to ask you to stand with me. Would you pray with me as, I, as you stand? Oh, Lord. 
how we need to be reminded of your power and forgiveness and new life. What you did at the cross is second to none. You paid our debt so that we could live. So Lord, we declare that now in song, but Lord, we need to declare it with our lives. So be in this time as we wrap this time together, Lord. May we respond to you as only we can, giving you our lives if we never have, trusting in you, Lord, allowing you into every part of our life to what needs to change so that you will be seen and heard through all that we are, all that we do. So now, Lord, be in this place. And as I say amen to this prayer, I want to remind you that these next couple of minutes may be the most important minutes in this service. Listen for Jesus. What is he saying to you as a result of his word? and this moment to respond to him.